I um, get moments um, during the course of ministry to um, find out sometimes um, how mean this congregation is. <laughs> Last week at about 4 o'clock when the Cowboys lost to the Packers, <laughs> I found out how mean some of you are. My phone started blowing up. If I hadn't even known the score, I would have known what happened because I started getting text messages from some of you. And I don't understand that because I am so humble and low-key when my team wins. But uh, I wore my, at first, I th actually thought it was my Duke blue today, but it's also my cowboy blue. So I'll say to combat, I had to wear blue because I knew I'd see a lot of two colors today. I knew I'd see a lot of green, and I knew I'd see a lot of red from you Buckeye fans that are still gloating. So... Uh, so anyway, it was, it's been fun, and, and it's, it's, in all, it was all good-natured, and I had a good time. with. Well, I would have had a better time had I been dishing it out, but, um, but I'm glad that we can have fun together over things that ultimately don't matter much. <laughs> can I tell you, I did this once. This was, I think I might have told this story. Um, when, when Ryan was, uh, he was less than a year old, and it was the year that Duke played Connecticut, in the national championship game when Duke was just a powerhouse. And uh, Tony and, and Ryan were gone that night, and I remember watching it with some young adults, and it's the game Duke lost. And I was so upset. Oh, I was so mad. And <laughs> I, kept, I couldn't sleep. I was, so, I was just so distraught. And I kept getting up. This is no lie. I would get up, and I would grab a picture of Ryan. And I kept looking at it because I was like, this is, this is what matters. My son, my family, that's, the game doesn't matter. The game doesn't matter. That's what I kept having to tell because it was so pathetic because I was just so beside myself mad that they had lost. That's where I realized I'd kind of crossed the threshold I needed to step back from. Uh, and I think I'm much better now. Um, before we get into our text this morning in Acts chapter 4, I want to let you know next week we're going to uh, gonna begin... Uh, a new sermon series called The Tipping Point. And the focus of our four weeks of this series is going to be small things that make a big difference, that help us kind of move beyond that tipping point. And we're going to talk about in these next few weeks, after uh, beginning next week, um, things like our thoughts and our words and our habits things that help propel us forward in faith and I think in life in general. So again, that's going to begin next week. So I invite you not only for next week, but in the weeks that follow to be a part of that series that's going to carry us into the season of Lent. So before we get there, let's talk about today and let's look at Acts chapter 4, the first 12 verses of this chapter. Now we have been in a, not, not really a series, but we've spent a few weeks looking at some various stories, some um, encounters of faith that we read in the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church of those first followers of Jesus. So we pick up at verse or chapter 4, and this really comes on the heels of the events of Acts chapter 3, the beginning of that chapter. We'll talk about that in a few moments. We're going to start at verse 4. Or chapter 4, verse 1. This is what we read. It says, The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, 
because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name do you do these things? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Lord, that in these moments the name of Jesus would be lifted up and in our hearts in our spirits, in our souls, we'd be open to hear the word that is spoken, the challenge that is given, the invitation that we receive to grow in faith in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. I, uh, I believe I shared a few months ago I say I believe I shared. One of the things that happens when um, you, you have an opportunity to, to preach every week, as I do, is you tend to forget things you've said. Uh, Tony's my sounding board all the time. I'll come up with, a, I may think of a story or something, and I have to go to her. I'm like, Tony, have I, have I used that one before? <laughs> and she'll remind me. Because sometimes when I was a, a young pastor, as an associate at St. Paul, I used to kind of to laugh because I didn't preach every week. Dr. Farmer would preach every week, and I would laugh sometimes because I'd hear him tell the same stories. I'd be like, I already told that story, you know, last year. Then I became the one preaching every week, and I realized I'm probably telling the same stories. And um, it gets hard, but, but I, I believe I told you a few months ago that my youngest brother, David, uh, and his wife, Judy, are expecting their second child. Uh, they, my nephew, Colin, is about five years old, and they're expecting in a few weeks now uh, the birth of their second son, uh, he is due somewhere around February 11th. And um, they're having a dilemma. They're having a, a problem that is not uncommon to parents. Uh, maybe you shared in this kind of a challenge uh, in, in, uh, your, with your own children, but uh, they can't come up with a name. They just can't land on what uh, they're going to name their son. And David will find a name he likes, and Judy doesn't necessarily like it, and Judy will find a name that she likes, and, and David doesn't necessarily like it. Or maybe they find a name that they like, and they start telling it to the family, and none of us like it. You know, it kind of goes that way. And so it's this sounding board, and they're trying to come up with a name. And so they'll, they'll, they'll test out names, and, and they'll use me as a sounding board. At one point, they were talking about naming the, the child Brian. Brian's a great name, but it's my other brother's name. And I said, there's no way you can name this boy after him. 
because he's already hard enough to live with. I don't want to deal with him if he gets that cocky. But, uh, but so they're, they're going through that process, and some of you know the process well, and they're talking to friends. You know who the worst people to talk to about names? The actually worst sounding boards are teachers. Teachers are. Because no matter what name you come up with, teachers can tell you a story about a child they had by that name who was awful. So you can't talk to teachers. Look, at all of you are right. Teachers are going, yeah, that's true. So every name they come up with, somebody goes, oh, no, I had a boy by that. I'm not even going to use names. And he was awful. You can't name him that. And uh, so they, they, they kind of, in exasperation, one conversation David and I were having, he said, you know what? You name him. You tell us the name. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'll be glad to name the kid. Uh, is Christopher off the table? But... Um, <laughs> But I came up, I thought biblical names would be good, so I suggested Methuselah. I suggested Melchizedek. That's another one I like. So they won't let me name the child now. So, um, so they're, they're, going, they're going through this. And, and the reason is because names matter. I mean, they're important. The names, whether they're family names, whether they're names that, that we just like, uh, names connect us to people. And sometimes they tell a story. Sometimes they, they have different levels of significance. Some names, uh, there was a, a pastor who was telling a story about a friend of his whose middle initial was T. And he could never get his friend to tell him what T stood for. Finally, his friend got tired of him bugging him. He said, fine, my middle name is Theophilus. And his friend looked at him and said, well, that's kind of interesting. Why did your parents choose Theophilus as your middle name? And he said, because when I was born, the doctor looked at me and said to my mother, that's the awfulest looking kid I've ever seen. Um, I know, boo. Um, but but names, names can be creative. They can be unique. Sometimes they can be um, too unique. Uh, Tony and I were talking last night. She had a friend. This is actually kind of an interesting name, but had a friend in high school by the name of um, Jade Green. Jade Green, yeah, and that kind of, and uh, so, so that conversation got me going, as I like to do, and I started to do the Google search for crazy names, and I uh, tried to find the ones that were appropriate to share, but I went and looked, and, and there were some names that I came across, like, uh, well, there was a, a woman that was arrested here in Florida not too long ago, and her name was Waffles, no, 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 Cherries Waffles Tennis. That was her, her given name, Cherries Waffles Tennis. Yeah, does make you think kind of what were the parents thinking? Um, there was some names I came across. There was one, Bud Light. That's a legal name. Uh, there was um, Cash, K-A-S-H, Cash Register. That was somebody's name. Uh, Mr., not Mr. M-R, but Emma, the name Mr. Love. That was uh, the name that I saw, that, that I came across. Uh, I always forget a few of these. A couple of the ones that I thought were kind of interesting. There's a young man by the name of Chris Bacon, which that in and of itself is not a big, I mean, Chris Bacon, but his middle name was something along the lines of Peter. So when he signed his name, it was Chris P. Bacon. <laughs> catch up, catch up, there you go. Uh, another one I saw, for all you Star Wars lovers, there was Jed Knight. And his middle initial was I, Jedi Knight. And then my favorite of the ones I came, which I think was kind of sad, but um, parents that named their daughter Tara. Now, you think, well, Tara, that's nothing wrong with that. And there's not. Tara's a very pretty name. But then their last name was Dactyl. 
Put it together. Put it together. How'd you like to be a little girl with the name pterodactyl? Um, names, you know, for, for a lot of reasons. They can be funny. They can be significant. There's a story that a few years ago when the Catholic Church was getting ready to elect uh, the next pope, that, you know, they elect from the cardinals, that one of the cardinals that was in the running was, uh, I believe, from Italy, and his name is Cardinal Sicola. And I thought, he should have won. How perfect would it have been? Because then he would have been Pope Sicola. <laughs> he should have won on that alone. That alone should have put him in. Even if they, they would have elected him, then they couldn't let him change his name, because they all changed their names, but you can't do that. Pope Sicola. Um, names can be funny. Uh, they can be significant. They can be poignant. They connect us. For better or for worse, they connect us. And, uh, and, and that matters. In fact, there was a, a quote I came across recently from the architect of the, the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C. And there, I believe it was a woman. I may, may be wrong. I can't remember the name. But they, they asked, they said, what makes that Vietnam Memorial so powerful, so significant to people? And the architect said, it's not the design. It's the names. It's the names that matter. That's why that place is so important to so many people. And I remember um, as, a, as a kid going to Washington, D.C. with my family. And I remember going to the Vietnam Memorial with my mom and dad, my dad who served in the Navy and uh, served during the time of that war. And, and he did not serve in Vietnam, but he served. And uh, him finding the names of friends and classmates who had lost their life in Vietnam. And I remember... I remember that being a very powerfully emotional moment. I remember the tears in his eyes as he looked up his friends whose names were there and what that meant. Names are powerful. They're significant. They connect. They tell a story. There is a, a children's book by the, by the name of the, the, the Naming Jar. is the title of the book by an author, last name of, of Choi. And uh, she tells the story in her book of a young girl from Korea, who comes to the United States. And on her first day of school, she rides the bus to school and she gets picked on because she's different and she's new. And the time came to introduce herself and, and she was embarrassed. And so she decided she wasn't going to tell anybody what her name was. In fact, she said to her class, I'm going to pick an American name. I'm going to pick a new name and kind of an attempt to fit in. And so as the story unfolds, they, they had a naming jar where people could make suggestions of what her name would be. And she tried on different names, Veronica and Valerie and Michelle. But one of her classmates went to where she lived and visited with her family and found out that her name meant something. Um, her name, uh, Jung, lay, I think, that meant grace. And he convinced her not to give up her name, but to own her name, because her name meant grace. It meant something. It was significant, as many names do. And grace for us is a significant name in any language, because it speaks to us of, of that gift that God has given, his matchless and merciful grace. But there's a name that is even more important to us, that is more significant, that is more central to us. And it is a name that is lifted up repeatedly in the story of Acts, and it's repeatedly lifted up in all of the Gospels. And, of course, you know that is the name of Jesus. And in this story this morning, in this encounter in Acts chapter 4, what has happened is, if you went back and read and read 
Acts chapter 3. I encourage you to do that. You read the story that after that day of Pentecost, as the believers have now been filled with the power and the courage of the Holy Spirit, and as they are boldly proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus, and miraculous things are happening, and people are coming to faith, that Peter and John, and it's significant that it's Peter, as it usually is, and he's the center, at the center of the, the, the first half of, of the book of Acts, but Peter, whose name is so significant, because it means rock, and Jesus says, that's the name I give you because you're the rock in which I will build my church. Peter and John are coming through the city. And they're coming by a gate at the temple that's called Beautiful, the Beautiful Gate. And there was a man that was being brought out who, who was um, crippled, couldn't walk. And in those days, there was no social safety net. There was no um, uh, social support system. The only way for people who were unable to earn money or to support themselves was to depend upon the giving of others, to beg so others would, would give them the money they needed to survive. And so as he's out there asking for help, he gets Peter and John's attention, and they engage him in a conversation. And he believes that they're going to give him some money. But Peter says to this man, he says, Silver and gold I have not to give you. But what I give you, I give in the name of of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And the scripture said that he stood. And I imagined he danced and he ran and he did what we would do if we received that kind of a miraculous healing or do if we receive that kind of a healing. We tell everybody about it. And that's exactly what he did. And people were amazed at what God had done. At least most of them. There were some that were threatened. And they're the same ones that felt threatened by Jesus. And they decide to call Peter and John into accountability. Because remember, these are the same people that are trying to stamp out Jesus. They thought they'd done that. But they couldn't have been more wrong. And so they call Peter and John to explain themselves. And this is the explanation. We read it earlier. I want to read it again. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, this is verse 8, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed. Now there's a dig there. I want you to catch that. Peter's saying, really? Really? You're calling us to give account because somebody was crippled and now they're whole. Somebody was, was unable, now they're healed. That's what you're wanting us to explain. I mean, think about the lunacy of that. I mean, would we call a doctor to accountability and say, please, um, we're very upset because you keep making people well. Stop. But that's what's happening. And he says, if you're wondering how this happened, then verse 10, then know this. All you people of Israel, it is the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, dig, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, who has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to which, to which, by which mankind must be saved. No other name under heaven. Peter is saying that this is the name. Now, now Jesus is a common name. I mean, that's interesting. Jesus is a very common name. It's Joshua. It's James. It's Keith. It's Kevin. It's a, a name that a lot of boys would have had. But, but 
Peter says, this name's different. This Jesus is different. In fact, it's not a common name anymore. We talk about Jesus. Believer and unbeliever alike, we think of the same person. This name is different than any other name. This different is higher than every other name. This is the name by which salvation has come. And when I read that, the immediate question becomes, what is so unique about this name? It's really not the name. It's the person behind the name. It's the significance of who that name points to. What is it about Jesus that is so different, that makes it not a special name, not just an elevated name, but the name above all others? And these are the truths that we know about Jesus, is that in Jesus of, of Nazareth, in Jesus Christ of Nazareth, God has revealed to us the uniqueness of who he is. Jesus is not a representative of God. Jesus is God. And the character that we see in Jesus is the character of who God is. There, there was the, the philosopher and atheist Ludwig Feuerbach. I've talked about him before. And, and he offered this critique of religion. He said that religion is nothing but man's projection of the best qualities of being a human being. It's taking the very best qualities and kind of blowing that up and projecting that and saying that's God. He says it's our reach to God and to try to create this God in our own image. And that was his critique of religion. Then, then along came the theologian Karl Barth. And, and he was familiar with Ludwig Feuerbach's critique. And he read it and he thought about it. And he said, you know what? He's right. That's exactly what religion is. But that's not who Jesus is. He says in Jesus, it's the opposite. In Jesus, we have God not waiting for us to find him, but saying, here I am. This is who I am. The fullness of, of my love, the fullness of my mercy, the fullness of my grace, the fullness of the character of who I am. Here I am. And if it's in Jesus, if it's of Jesus, it's of God. That's why our faith is through the lens of the cross. All that happened before, all that happens after, it is through the lens of who Jesus is. And if it's not of Jesus, we as Christians proclaim it's not of God. That's why we cannot hate in the name of Jesus. I don't care who proclaims it, because Jesus didn't hate. Accountable? Yes. Calling people to change? Absolutely. But always with love and with mercy and with grace not with picket signs and anger and meanness. That's not of Jesus. And if it's not of Jesus, it's not of God. Jesus is God saying, here I am. The uniqueness of who I am right here, embodied in my love and mercy. In fact, the reality about Jesus is we can choose to accept him. We can choose to deny him. But we cannot ignore him. The 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 writer, historian, author H.G. Wells, who was an atheist himself, as he studied human history, came to this conclusion. He said, the life of Jesus Christ is at the very center of the human story. He's the most dominant figure in all of human history. And again, H.G. Wells was not a Christian. Will Durant, another um, historian, and wrote a book um, about philosophy and the heroes of humanity. And he said the three years that Jesus walked the earth was the apex of the human story. It's the center 
of the human story. It had more impact than any person who has ever lived. Jesus was uniquely different, uniquely impactful because he is uniquely God. And so the name that is above all others is the name that gives us the picture, the fullness of who God is. And it's the name that points to the one who reminds us of the significance of what God has done. Not just the uniqueness of who he is, but the significance of what he has done. There was a a missionary, a Catholic missionary in South Africa in the 60s and the 70s by the name of Brother Crispin. Brother Crispin did his mission work in Zambia um, and near the, um, oh gosh, I'm blanking on the river. I apologize. Um, But, uh, ah, darn it, I hate it when I do that. But, But anyway... There was a, a major river there in Zambia that was, um, it was dangerous to cross. There were reasons that the people would have to cross on occasion, but it was incredibly dangerous. In 1971, five people died crossing that river, Zampezi, the Zampezi River. And uh, so he decided a bridge needed to be built so people could safely get from one side to the other. Here was the problem. He'd never built a bridge, and he had no materials. But he didn't let that stop him. And he set out to learn and to read how to build a bridge and to solicit donations. And he did both those things. And in a project that took five years, he eventually completed the bridge that still stands today. It is known as the Bridge of Hope. And it is not a marvel of architectural ingenuity. It is not the best and most beautiful bridge you'll ever see, but it still stands. And that bridge allowed people to safely cross from one side to the other. God gives us Jesus to be the bridge, to do for us what we are incapable of doing for ourselves, to say to us, I have come to you so that you may safely bridge a chasm that has separated your sin that separates you from me in my sacrifice, in my love, I am doing for you what you are incapable of doing for yourself. Paul would say, it is by grace we are saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It's not your works. Paul says in my translation, don't be cocky. You didn't do it. God's done it for you. That's the work of Jesus, to be that bridge, to invite us into the relationship. See, religion very often, and Christianity included, becomes our quest to be good enough to earn it, to deserve it, to do all the right things. Now, I'm not saying that holy living doesn't matter. That would be a denial of the Scriptures. We always have to remember that grace is God's gift. What Christianity, what Jesus says to us, is that I have come to do for you what you can't do for yourself. You are not good enough on your own. That sounds defeatist, but it's not. Saying that your goodness, your potential to live in, is a responsiveness to what God has done, not an earning of it. And that's good news for us because we all know our own failures. We all know our sins. We know our shortcomings. God in Christ says, I build that bridge for you in spite of yourself and invites us into it. It is the name by which Jesus is the name by which all may be saved. By the way we are saved and we're invited out of the character of who God is and the act of love in what he has done for us. We're invited into faith. We're invited, as Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
and we're invited into that relationship through Jesus, the name above all others. Now, word of warning, friends. In all seriousness, we profess that humbly, not arrogantly. This is really, really important. We profess that humbly, not arrogantly, because this is the truth, as Dr. Thomas Langford so powerfully said to a group of young seminarians once in a theology course at Duke Divinity School. He looked at us and said, don't you ever forget, you do not possess the truth. You point to the one who is the truth. And there's a big difference. We don't get it all right. We're not perfect, infallible, and without error. That's Jesus. We simply point to him. And we do that with respect for other traditions and other faiths. But we also don't water down the gospel. We don't change the truth for which we have been called. There is no other name by which we may be saved than the name of Jesus. And so we live that out. And sometimes we live that out even in our own uncertainty. Uh, I sat in this hall this week at the end of the hall with a young man by the name of James Broadaway. James was a middle school um, student who was a part of the youth group when Tony and I were youth pastors at Haines City United Methodist Church. And uh, James is now serving Christ and going to South Africa. He and his wife and three, three boys going to South Africa on the mission field. I would love to take credit for James, but I can't. I was just but a small piece of his story. But we sat there and talked about our faith and the way God has worked in our lives. Now, James grew up United Methodist, but he's not United Methodist anymore. He's in a different Christian tradition. And we had a wonderful discussion about all the things that we are, held different opinions about theologically. And if you'd listen to us and you had no idea, you'd think these two don't agree on anything. And it was a wonderful, respectful discussion. We don't have all the answers. We both know there are things we're just not sure about. But what we are sure about is Jesus what we are sure about is an invitation we're given to faith through Christ. And on that, there was no disagreement. There was no discrepancy. It's about receiving Christ. That's the invitation we are all given. We approach that humbly, graciously, and thankfully. The challenge is to simply ask, have you received? Have you placed your faith in the one whose name is above all others? the name at which we might be saved, have you come to the throne of grace? This morning as we close in prayer, I want to offer an invitation that is always open. And that is, you may pray wherever you are. You may rededicate, recommit, reaffirm that faith, but if you've never made that commitment, I invite you to come down here to pray. And I'll pray with you. And you know what? If we go over, somebody else can do the benediction. We can pray. I don't want you to leave today without an opportunity to receive the gift of God's grace in Jesus, to receive the love that says, I will do for you what you can't do for yourself. I will bring you into a relationship, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. The altar is open for prayer for any reason. And all I say is if you want to pray and you want me to pray with you, get my attention, because sometimes you want to just come and pray on your own. This altar is open for prayer. You may pray where you are. You may pray in song. But open your hearts to the gift of God in Jesus Christ. He is the name that is above all names. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your invitation to us. Thank you that you step into our lives and you heal us like that, that beggar who was made well. We are all in some way crippled. We are all weak 
but we are made strong in Christ. We are made whole in Christ. We receive forgiveness in Christ. But let us not walk out of here today without affirming that commitment, that faith, or receiving for the first time the love of Jesus. Whether it be here at the altar, whether it be where we sit, in the stillness of our own hearts, help us to receive the gift that you give. The love that has been shown, the grace that is poured out through Jesus. And receive in the name of the one whose name is above all others, Jesus our Lord. Amen. Friends, let's stand as we sing together our hymn of commitment, Oh, How I Love Jesus.